Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball. I am your host, Howard Megdahl, reminding you that there are a number of ways to follow us, whether it's on Twitter, at Locked On WBB. You can like us on Facebook, Locked On Women's Basketball, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice. Uh, I am here today with a legendary player, coach, and just important person in the history of the game of basketball, and that's Dawn Staley, head coach at University of South Carolina. Uh, Coach, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Howard. place I would love to start is just to talk to you about your earliest memories of playing basketball growing up in Philadelphia. What first drew you to the game? Well, I mean, I I grew up in in the projects in North Philly called the Raymond Rosen Projects. And within our community, uh, there were a lot of different competitive people playing different sports. Um, I played tackle football. I played baseball. I played softball. I played basketball. Whatever the guys were doing, um, I found myself around them doing that. And it's just um, my appetite for competition, you know, was, was spread out over all of those different sports and um i just you know I, thank goodness I, I had to use sports to uh to to utilize or to you know to utilize uh my competitiveness or you know or else i could find myself in some big trouble trying to compete maybe at a casino or something <laughs> and and i mean north philly is is this factory for basketball as well and so i would imagine that that was a significant part of what drove you to basketball specifically. Um, I'm wondering whether gender played a part early on as a potential barrier, number one, or number two, whether getting into it so young altered the way uh, that affected your earliest memories of getting into the game. Well, as as far as I can remember back, I, I knew I played before eight, but I can only remember up, up to uh, eight years old. Um, and then I played it for a while, all those different sports. But the the, the aha moment uh, that I knew basketball was my vehicle uh, to getting other things, to branch off, you know, to get other things in life was when I first received a letter from from a college when I was in the eighth grade. So once I, you know, got that letter seeking interest, and it, it was probably nothing but, you know, them inviting me to their camp, um, and I think it was like an Ivy League school. Um, so once I, I knew that someone took some interest um, in me and playing basketball is when I really just honed in and played probably almost uh, 75% of sports were, were really dedicated to, to playing basketball. Now, obviously at that time, it's before the WNBA is uh, in existence. Are you thinking about basketball as a ticket to college, or are you thinking of it as something that you were hoping to play professionally? Because obviously there were a number of these leagues overseas at the time. Well, back then I had no idea about, you know, uh, playing overseas. Obviously the WNBA didn't exist, you know, and we all have that, that dream of being the first female uh, to play in the NBA because that's the only thing that I was exposed to. That was the only thing, you know, and, and the Sixers were good when I was growing up. And then and then once I start getting older, there are two events that 
really stood out where I saw women play doing, you know, I, what I thought was the peaks of their career um, was the Olympics and then the Final Four. Mm-hmm. You know, women's basketball Final Four. Those were the only two um, events that I was exposed to other than the NBA. You know, so then I started working towards wanting, had a goal of becoming a, an Olympian, a gold medalist, and then wanting to go play um, in college and get to the Final Four and win a national championship. So I, I know, you know, because of that exposure, goals and dreams came out of uh, me seeing women play in that capacity. Who do you remember? What Olympics and, and which Final Four stands out when you sort of think back to those moments that your dreams were pegged? Um, I Back then I was uh, 14 and 14 years old. Um, I, I remember Texas. I do remember Texas having a undefeated season. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was one of the schools that I, that I remembered. Um, and then the Olympics, it, it had to be, I, I can't remember. I just, I just knew that I, I saw women out there playing and, 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 and playing at a high level, just not just Americans. It was just, you know, internationally, there were players that I saw do things that, you know, I had never seen before because it was just me and the guys playing out in my neighborhood. And so, I, I mean, does that play a part in the model that you've built pretty much everywhere you've gone as the idea that simply seeing women of achievement is the significant marker to allowing your players to dream about what they hope to be, whether it's in basketball or any other aspect of life? Well, I think anytime you expose you know, something to, uh, to an individual, um, I think it increases their, their appetite for, for wanting more. If they really love the, you know, love what you're exposing them to, um, it's, it's, it's like, look at the WNBA, Mm -hmm. uh, because the WNBA has been in existence for 20, 20, over 20 years now, uh, players are better because of it. And, um, I think because, uh, college women's basketball is on TV, you know, almost every day of the, of the week. You know, little girls are are picking up the basketball. They're getting, you know, they're getting trainers. They're getting they're getting individual coaching. Uh, they're playing AAU. They're playing at a high rate uh, because of you know them wanting to to play at the the highest level. And, and you know, so what I find so interesting about your development uh, just to, in terms of career is you came along at really an in-between time you opened so many eyes at virginia but take me through what you're thinking about as your college career comes to a close and like you said this is right before the wnba that you know there is a professional outlet there but what are you thinking your life and career is headed toward at that moment well at at that time my you know, my goal was to be an Olympian and to be a gold medalist. So that that's what I turned my, you know, my, uh, I turned my focus on, on that. And when I, when I got cut from the 92 
Olympic team. Um, there were two reasons why they told me I got cut. One was, you know, I was I was too short. And the other one was I didn't have enough international experience. So, you know, I couldn't do anything about my height. But surely I can go out and go overseas uh, to gain some more international experience. So I turned my focus to getting an agent and trying to figure out um, an opportunity to play over overseas. And it took it took uh, took about uh, almost six weeks for me to get that opportunity after graduating from college. And you know, once I got that opportunity, you know, I I, I took care of the rest. Six weeks isn't isn't bad as far as the lag time between graduation and a job for sure. But I, I, I think it's really interesting that that was the only structure that was in place. What, what was the structure like at that time when you're going overseas? Was it uh, haphazard the way uh, a lot of the international leagues are today? Or uh, was that structure something where you felt like, all right, this is something that I could be doing for the next 5, 10, 15 years of my career because again, uh, the Olympics obviously are this amazing dream, but that's not going to pay the bills. Right. Well, well, the structure was it was really difficult for guards to get placed overseas. Hmm. So I was in a position where um, I actually replaced someone. So someone didn't work out in the first six weeks of the season, and and six weeks is a is a lifetime when you when basketball has been so much a part of your life. And the structure of, of playing on the on a team and being, you know, having your schedule set up for you to you're just thrown out there to work out on your own, to figure it out, not knowing what the future holds. But then when I got the call and my first job was over in Segovia, Spain, um, and it was it was eye opening uh, because professional uh, um, athletics you it's it's all about what you put into it if you don't do extra if you don't put in the time um to to get better you know you you can't lose the love for the game and it's so much different than college again everything in college is scripted for you hmm. they tell you when to eat you know they tell you when to you know practice they tell you when to study they tell you when you know you know when you have a block of free time international and professional basketball you you practice maybe once or twice a day and then the times in between uh they don't they don't make it mandatory that you lift weights they don't make make it mandatory that you watch you know watch practices and watch film they they make it mandatory that you win a, you know you score enough points to win and that's it it doesn't matter how you get to that they don't tell you you know they don't tell you how uh, to accomplish that. Um, so it was really an eye opening, um, experience, but one that, you know, one that forces you to, uh, put in that extra if you want, if you want to get something out of it. Do you think that needing to create your own vision for this has helped you when you've gone to build multiple college programs because you had to implement a system of your own in a way that even players who come along a few years later, there is a pipeline here in the United States now from college to the WNBA. And perhaps there's not as much individual need to take a holistic vision for how to get better. 
Well, I think what, you know, those early experiences, um, you you rely on what you did in, in college because it was a structure that, you know, was set up and it, it created success because you were, you know, you were managing your time, you were prioritizing. Um, for me, I just, I've been, I was probably born with the, you know, innate ability to kind of feel what looks right and sounds right. And, and, uh, um, and, and when you, when you have those things, you, you have a tendency to figure it out. I mean, you don't always get things done, you know, the right way you, it, it was, you know, when I got into coaching, it was, you know, I know what this is supposed to look like. I may not have the ability to break it down into small little detailed pieces, um, but I knew what the end result looked like. So you got to surround yourself with people who can break it down to the to the point where you know you're understanding and you can teach it. Um, but you know, for for me, basketball is you know comes fairly easy to me. Um, and I've had, you know, mentors, I've had coaches, I've had, you know, people that I've watched, I've had the NBA, I've had all these, uh, experiences to draw on just by watching, just being around the game, um, that you pick up some things that you like and you pick up some things that you don't like, and then you figure out, you know, how to make it work. You know, you talked about, you knew what it looked like. And one of my favorite stories that I've heard you tell is talking about going into a temple job interview uh, mm-hmm. essentially by accident <laughs> you were pulled into this and didn't know it would be a job interview and suddenly there are 12 people around a conference table asking you uh, about how you'd build a program and, and I, I guess I've always wondered was it in your mind that coaching could be something you could do even if Temple at that time, while you're at the peak of your abilities playing in the WNBA, wasn't necessarily what you were looking at as an opportunity. No, I never thought I would would be a coach. I, I never had a, you know, no. Not what, what did you think you would do? Once basketball was done, had had you considered where you wanted to be? I mean, you're someone who could have done just about anything you wanted to. Well, I I probably wanted to be more behind the scenes, more in in the television. So I wanted to go that that route, and not, you know, and not coach. I it's not that I didn't have great coaching because I've had some great coaches, you know, in my in over my career. It's just I just didn't feel like I wanted to. I didn't feel like I could. And I don't know why, because my I'm, I'm a point guard. This is kind of what I do. Right. I didn't I didn't think I wanted to do it 24 hmm. seven. Well, you know? I, I mean, it, it was something more than 24 seven at Temple. I mean, for you to do yeah. that, I, I mean, I, it it kind of boggles the mind. Just that you're in the middle of the peak of your playing, and you managed to build a successful Temple program uh, at the same time. I, I wonder if you think that what you were able to do there in 2000, in the early uh, part of the last decade, has the game developed and changed and gotten more competitive to the point that perhaps that would be harder or even impossible to do uh, here in 2016, 2017? Um, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I, I think with, 
it all depends on who you surround yourself with. You got to have people. You can't be, you know, afraid to, to delegate. Um, you got to have good people that understand that can, you know, that can see and deliver your vision for, for, for a program. There may not be a whole lot of people that can handle that. Um, because, um, it's a role. It's a role. If I didn't have the coaches around me um, in 2000 that that I had, I just don't think we would have been as successful. Mm -hmm. um, so we all understood what our roles were. We understand how, you know, it, it, it's a, an incredible sacrifice. When I'm away for five months out of the, the year and I'm not on campus and I'm playing in the WNBA, you know, your staff has to be very organized. Um, you got to plan ahead of time. Uh, and you got to use, you know, me playing in the WNBA to uh, to our advantage, which, which we did. Um, Are you surprised so I, there no one else has tried to emulate that pattern? I mean, as difficult as it would seem to be, the success was so considerable and almost immediate at Temple. Do you think that that's something that would make a lot of sense, especially in light of the fact that, you know, the WNBA remains a uh, – relative minority of the total calendar year? Um, I, I'm not going to say it, it can't get done. I don't know if, if, if ADs are willing to take that, to take that chance. Mm -hmm. um, um, I thought Temple was, you know, was willing to take the chance probably because they wanted to win the press conference um, <laughs> they, at that particular time because right. it, it made sense for them. I'm, I'm I'm from Philadelphia. I grew up, you know, watching and playing on their campus. Um, um, so it it, it kind of made sense to do it that way. Um, I, I think uh, I think women's basketball, and I think it was visionary. Yeah. I think women's basketball is at a place where ads are going to want full time people. You know, mm -hmm. if they could, you know, if they could. You know, they could hire somebody for uh, an entire year and, and feel like they can get the same type of uh, results. They're going to do that. I, I mean, just the devil's uh, advocate and I, the argument, I guess, to be made is that seven months of Dawn Staley did more for Temple than 12 months of most <laughs> other coaches done for anyone else. But, but you talk about Philly and, and it did. It broke through. In Philadelphia at that time, and I, I I grew up about ten minutes outside of the city uh, of Philadelphia as well, so it, it's placed close to my heart. And something I do wish I'd love to see uh, at some point is a WNBA franchise uh, in the city of Philadelphia. Do you think that would be a good fit? Could you see that working? And uh, are you surprised it hasn't happened yet? Uh, I I don't really foresee that happening, or I don't think Philly is a great place for. For it, we, I mean, the ABL tried it mm -hmm. uh, with the Philadelphia Rage, and it's just too much competition. It's it's too much. It's a big city. It's a you know a, a place people come to you know vacation. They're just I don't think they're gonna want to spend time, you know. And that we got harsh winters, mm -hmm. so when the when the weather breaks, people are gonna want to be outside. So I don't just don't think it's too much competition with other sports and other professional sports. I mean, there are, I mean, there are six division one colleges right in the city. True. 
you know, so it's, it's, it's just too much competition for, for that to take place. And, you know, Philly fans are fickle. When you don't win a championship, they're going to, you're going to nail the coffin. They're going to nail the, the women's basketball coffin shut. True. Although, although as the Sixers rebuild, perhaps now's the time to strike while the iron is hot. But, but I, I see your point for sure. <laughs> so, and when you made the jump to South Carolina, what was your vision for what South Carolina could be, and how long did you expect it to take to get there? Um, you know, as South Carolina, and, and you have to understand my mindset when I came from Temple, we really didn't have a traditional campus. You know, the pull on coming to Temple, getting kids to come to Temple, was they wanted to be there. They wanted that urban um, environment. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a really hard place to recruit, especially if you're trying to win a national championship. I thought with where South Carolina was located, I thought that where what conference did South Carolina was a part of the SEC? Um, it gave us a shot to to get kids to at least kids I'm talking about that's highly talented, that's highly recruited, um, to get them to take a look, even if it was just using my name um, to make that happen. And I, I thought we could win a national championship. I know. People thought it was far-fetched of, of me saying that, and that's probably what your cliche is, is what you're supposed to say. But I just thought we had all the, the key ingredients to, to to make it work. It just We just needed players. We just needed, you know, opportunity to, to get some players in that believed in, you know, our, our vision. And we were very, very fortunate that, and I didn't know this at the time, that we had some of the best players in the country you know, that were sixth, seventh, eighth graders. Mm-hmm. So we, we came along at a great time uh, where we cultivated some relationships. We forged, we went down and pound the pavements uh, to make sure that, you know, we got we got South Carolina cornered uh, to, to where, because they, you know, being here in the in the South, culturally, like they, they're, they're into their families. They want to stay close to the home. And we just kind of honed in on, you know, keeping them here and then just building a fan base to where uh, they would want to stay home. So so the idea was essentially to build from within out is what you're saying. I mean, it makes sense if you look at your roster now where obviously you have Asia and Elena from South Carolina, but otherwise you've picked up people from all over the country uh, to build this team. Yeah, well, we, I mean, we, we, we certainly had to build outside of the, the the you know this area first because there wasn't anything you know immediate here um so we were just scratching and clawing to see who would who would you know bite the bullet and believe in our in our vision and we we, we did get some good ones um you know i just thought that again when we were in a position where you you gotta you, you gotta want to be at south carolina hmm. so very similar to temple you had to want to be at Temple. You had to want to be at South Carolina because, you know, we were the, you know, we weren't, you know, top. We weren't even in the top half of of our conference. So we got people that just believed in. Well, they loved the game. That's number one. You know, once once we got players in here that absolutely loved the game, um, 
we were able to change the culture. And was there a moment where you felt, and I, I'm curious about this actually at both, at both programs you built, uh, both at Temple and at South Carolina, a moment where you said, all right, this vision for what I have here has, a, has real roots and is, and is taking hold. Um, I, I would say, um, it's probably when we, when we went to our first week 16, mm-hmm. cause that was, that was the, the hump in my coaching career. Cause we could never get past the second round, um, at Temple of the NCAA tournament. But once we got past, you know, that first weekend of the tournament, I just felt like we had a shot, you know, it was, it was, we, we, and, and the makeup of our team was, was people that absolutely love basketball. You use Twitter, I would argue, as effectively as any coach in basketball. Tell me a little bit about how you view that medium and why you are as active as you are on it. Um, I, I think it's a, and I probably was the first coach to, you know, I didn't, I didn't like it at first, but I think it was back eight years ago, eight years ago. Um, someone, one of our administrators approached me about, you know, this Twitter. And at first I was like, no, I don't want people to know what I'm doing, where I am. And then I just started using it as a, a, a tool to connect with, with fans, a tool to connect with recruits. And it, 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 you know, it's indirectly, you know, and I I think it's, it's been a, a tool that has brought, you know, our, our fan base to a point where they feel like they, they know me and I feel like I know them. Um, and it's, it's been great. It's, it's, it's all about branding. I don't put anything on Twitter that I don't want known. I don't share anything on Twitter that I don't want, you know, you know, people, people to know. I mean, I'm very strategic in, in what I put on there. Um, so I think our, our, our fans really understand. And I give them enough to where, you know, it, it satisfies their, their appetite. But, you know, we got some really good fans. They're knowledgeable. They want more and they want more and they want more. But you give them enough to where they're satisfied and they'll they'll just stay engaged in what we're doing and, uh, it's been great. I, I wish that our our players were uh, savvy enough or sophisticated enough to use it, you know, as a tool to 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 brand themselves. But you know, they're young. They wanna they wanna put their whole life on, on their timeline. And um, if you if you're strategic about it, you know, you can you know you can you can be successful at, at other avenues besides basketball. And it's so interesting to me when you talk in terms of the branding, because when I see the arc, and I'm curious whether you see this arc in the same way, you see the arc of the most successful programs uh, in the post-Title IX era, and whether whether it starts with Tennessee and UConn, where there's a significant overlap between UConn and Tennessee and that huge rivalry, but UConn taking that mantle, what you've done at South Carolina, building that fan base where you're drawing as well as anyone in the country. Uh, you guys travel extraordinarily well on the road uh, in addition. The missing piece, in essence, is to go out and put those banners up 
and mm -hmm. you are now in a position arguably to do it as well as anyone this year and in the years going forward is that the brand that you have in mind as the marquee place in college basketball well i i think what has taken place is um we we we've we had a vision okay we we've talked about that vision um we we see what you know national championship teams look like you know the stands are filled um uh, they they travel well um i think we have you know players in our our system that you know that is attractive this has become an we've become an attractive place um and i think when you when you have all of those elements coming together um it's bound to lead to something pretty successful mm -hmm. and you know hopefully with who we have what we have our fan base you know our you know support from our administrators you know the the entire community here um, in Columbia South Carolina they want it they can feel it and you know I think it I think we have what it takes to to win a national championship you know it's not going to be easy it's a very difficult thing to do, um, but we've been, you know, we've been we've been elevating ourselves to this point. We've been getting better. We've been understanding what it takes, and each year we we try to get a little bit closer to uh, to to getting that national championship. So this year, that performance you had early on against Louisville, a lot of people I talked to thought of it as in essence, the best performance by any team uh, in any game in the country this year. What did you see out of that, and how closely did that, how close did that come to uh, sort of embracing your vision for what this team could be at its very best? Well, I, I certainly didn't drink the Kool Aid. <laughs> that's that's for one thing. <laughs> um, and I, I thought we had a, a a really great performance. We were you know prepared well. I thought our players executed the game plan to a T. Um, but I, I still see some holes in our, you know, in this team. And and you have to also understand that we're a very inexperienced team, you know, on the perimeter, mm -hmm. especially whether that's the the players that we start and and, and the, the, the perimeter players that we bring off the bench. They've never played, you know, in you know, significantly under our our coaching staff, you know, besides this year, so seven games. So we're still gelling. We're still trying to figure out our identity on the defensive side of the ball because, you know, <laughs> a lot of what we have, the talent that we have, they just really enjoy the offensive side of the ball. And, you know, and, and our, our defense isn't where it needs to be, but – you know, I, I like the direction that we're headed in. Um, and just as well as we played against Louisville, and, you know, we have, you know, what happened to us on Sunday at Duke. Right. You got to be able to take people's best shot. And I don't think they're, they're, they're always ready for, for, for that, having that target on their backs because, you know, it's something that they really haven't had to deal with being like being in the role of, 
having to make an impact, you know, every every night. Is there part of you that's happy something like that happens? Uh, you're talking about it being early on in the process, and certainly whether whether it's Taylor Davis or Alicia Gray, it's learning to play on this team uh, with a lot of returning pieces. Is, is that something a that's useful, and b how do you how do you use it as a coach? Well, I'm not happy, you know. Right. Obviously, losing. Um, I, I think it is. It just it goes to show me this that everything that I was feeling about this team uh, happened in that game. Hmm. Defensively, everything that I was feeling. And then offensively, you know, what if you know four of our starters have a bad night offensively? That could very well happen. So I think it, it's a great time for it to happen. It's a great way to regroup and get back to, you know, being being disciplined and, and competing, especially defensively, because I don't think we were doing that. I think we were, you know, we had some stretches, you know, in the games leading up to, to Duke where we, you know, we, we look good defensively, but you, you have to be on all the time, on all the time and and that just didn't take place so it's it was great to get back in the gym today to to work on some things and they came back you know ready to get better so obviously it's a it's a lesson that you know hard lesson that we have to to learn so when Rebecca Lova was talking about your roster when I spoke to her on the podcast earlier this week she was saying that her question stemmed from who is that one person down the stretch uh, to take over a game, to take the shot when it needed to happen, and that Asian Elena, as great as they are, they're bids and they're reliant on being given the ball. Do you see it that way, or do you see it as a potential advantage that you have so many players this year now? You know, with Kayla, you know, with Alicia, uh, and also the inside duo, who could be that number one option late in games for you to call on. Well, I think you, you, you. I don't think with what we have on our team, you you have to kind of go with who's got the hot hand. Um, obviously, you know our post players they shoot sixty percent from the floor, um, and you know. But you also have you know a player like you know Kayla Davis that you know she can get a shot anytime she wants to get a shot. But she's also savvy enough that you know to figure out what's the best. What's the what's the best option out there on the floor? So you know, for me, I, I you know I don't know the answer to that question because I don't know my team as well as you know I want to know them. Again, seven games, we've only played seven games, so I'm figuring out where they are effective, um, where you know where they are you know competitive, you know where their weaknesses are. Um, so I think for now. We have a, you know, we have options to play inside out or outside in. Um, I think, you know, you know that is yet to be to be known at this point. It's interesting, and and it leads me to wonder whether the challenge of UConn is something that you're happier to have come February, because there, there's a lot of conversation about ah, well, it's later in the year for a real young UConn team. But is that helpful on your end as well, just because you are incorporating so many people? Well, I think when, you know, when you have a, you know, a, a UConn on your schedule later on in the season, they're at a different place than us too because, 
we're we're in the SEC and we gonna we we beat each other up every night, mm-hmm. you know, and then to have to go and play, you know, somebody that's different. I I like it because it's a little bit closer to the NCAA tournament. Um, you're a little bit more seasoned um, from a just playing and knowing each other, um, especially with this particular team that we that we have that needs just more game experience. We just need to play um, a lot more games so we can figure out where where we're best in, 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 in different situations. So when when you think about the national championship pursuit, do you visualize it? And not just to yourself, but do you talk about that vision with your players as well? Um, I, I do visualize it. I, I do feel like... Uh, is something that that we're supposed to have at at some point. Selfishly, I think it's something that I'm supposed to have, you know, from you know, from you know what I what I've given to the game. But I, I know it's not gonna be given to us. But I, I don't speak on my vision of it. I, I do speak generally about it uh, to our team because that's something they've spoken about. Wanting to win a national championship. Cause I don't want you know, although I wanna win it I want it to be their vision, um, and I, I want it to come from their their vantage point of of you know doing what it takes uh, to win it. And when you have you know your entire team saying those things, you know it's a little bit easier to practice and a little bit easier to ask them to do some things that they don't want to do because um, they you know they they want they want to win. And so to that end, to that vision, you know you have that. Uh, the equivalent of Red Auerbach's victory cigar, which is the changing into the into the sneakers uh, late in mm-hmm. games. Do you have a pair of sneakers set aside for that national championship game? I I don't. I, I'm a routine. I just keep it the keep it the same. You know, if it's if it's a cold climate, I'm gonna have some boots. You know, <laughs> if it's a warm climate, I might have some sneakers. So should be warm in a, Dallas. Huh? It should be warm in Dallas. Yep. I, I definitely won't have flip flops on, though. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dawn Staley, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Uh, it was just an absolute pleasure, and look forward to seeing you again down the line, as I'm sure I will. Thanks, Howard. I appreciate you having me. Thanks right. for the your great questions. And thanks for listening to all of you. Uh, This has been another episode of Locked On Women's Basketball. Just a reminder, you can follow us on Twitter at Locked On WBB. You can like us on Facebook, Locked On Women's Basketball. And make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice so that whenever the next episode comes, you get it downloaded to your device right away. I'm Howard Meddell wishing you a wonderful day.